This is the McGregor Dementia Support Ministry Podcast, a podcast providing relevant resources to those currently walking the dementia journey with their loved ones. Today's podcast is a session recorded from our Alzheimer's and Dementia Seminar held here at McGregor Baptist Church on February 19th, 2022. Today's podcast session title is Coping with Grief and Loss on the Dementia Journey by Dr. Edward G. Shaw. this lady here. This is Rosalind Carter. And um, she said, there are four kinds of people in the world. Those who have been caregivers, those who are currently caregivers, those who will be caregivers, and those who will need caregivers. And uh, she's a, a wonderful and a wise lady. So what are some statistics about dementia caregivers in the United States? So uh, right now, there's about 6 million people in the United States who are living with Alzheimer's disease, another 2 million people living with some other type of dementia, um, and nominally, each family has a couple of family caregivers. So we have at least 16 million family caregivers uh, in the United States, and the Alzheimer's Association has done uh, statistics on the characteristics of these caregivers. About a third of them are spouses, meaning about two-thirds of family care partners are adult children. Two out of three are women, and one in four are what I call sandwich generation-ers, meaning it's a family caring for aging parents, but also still caring for children at home. The average amount of care that a family caregiver provides per month is about 100 hours per month, so about 25 hours a week. And you think about that in the context of that's two-thirds of a full-time job. And if most of these caregivers are adult children, and many of them have their own families, they're literally trying to sort of fit in caregiving of a parent along with caring for their own family's needs and, of course, caring for themselves. The kind of care that people with dementia requires is heavy-duty care. Um, things like getting in and out of bed because of mobility issues, getting dressed, taking a bath or taking a shower, eating, um, going to and from the toilet. And about a third of people overall with dementia are incontinent, but by the end of the journey, literally all people with dementia are incontinent. It's hard caregiving, and talk to so many of you um, uh, uh, during the, the non-speaking times who have shared just how hard your caregiving journeys uh, are. So this is, um, this is a picture of um, uh, my family. Um, this is before Rebecca had that moment in time where she lost recognition. It was kind of our last family photo shoot where uh, where we were all together and mom was doing reasonably well. And uh, in the first chapter of this book, I talk about our family's journey and about the impact that uh, Rebecca's disease had, uh, not just on our marriage, but also on our uh, three adult children. Um, and uh, there's one of now two uh, grandsons. 
So the first of the eight central needs um, is the need to tell and retell your story. So um, I, I think in some ways this is the most important of the central needs because what a person who's on the journey as a caregiver needs to do more than any other thing is to talk about it. So many of you have come up and you've told me about the loved one or loved ones that you're caring for with dementia and some aspect of being a caregiver often with tears because it's a hard journey. And there's something that's very, very therapeutic about being able to tell your story. Um, now, uh, I had a chance to listen to Pastor David during the breakout session. And David, you, you said something that uh, was uh, really interesting, important, and something I never thought about before. Um, and that is that um, it's important to not compare your story to somebody else's. Um, and I think about the support groups that we do. So my passion as a mental health counselor is support groups, is getting people in support groups, uh, teaching support group leaders how to be better at, at leading support groups. Um, and one of the, really the most powerful thing about, um, about being in a support group is you're with a group of like individuals and you're sharing your story, but I had just never thought about comparing the story, and I think it's something that I'll be mindful of because no two stories are the same. It's hard to say that you know, his journey would be harder than her journey, but yet being in a group, like the, the, the groups that Kim has here, um, being in a group and just knowing that you're with other people who are walking that same path and sharing your own experience, maybe learning from others' experiences, but, but not necessarily doing the comparing. So I thank you for, for that. But the need to tell your story is so important. There's also the need to retell your story. And that's why groups meet on a regular basis over time. Because dementia is a moving target. I say every day is the best day. Because the person might be stable the next day, but it's a neurodegenerative disease. And over time, things are going to get worse. And you encounter new challenges. Uh, somebody was just asking me, well, what about the challenges that occur later in the journey? The agitation and the aggression and you know, wanting to go home and sort of wander away from, from where uh, the person lives. The, these are some of the, the later challenges. And so until you encounter those, you can't really tell your story about them. And that's why the groups are so important, is each time you get a chance to share your story and to tell and retell the story. Now, this is a picture of Sandra Day O'Connor. She was the first female Supreme Court justice. So Supreme Court nominees have been in the, the news a lot the last few years. Um, she retired from the bench to take care of her husband, John, who had Alzheimer's disease. And then Justice O'Connor developed Alzheimer's disease. And, but she became the first person to testify before Congress about the need to ramp up the research funding for Alzheimer's disease. So prior to the Obama administration, there was millions of dollars dedicated to Alzheimer's research. 
In the Obama administration, it went to billions. In the Trump administration, it went to billions and billions. And I'm pretty sure that that funding is going to continue in the current administration, given the age of our president. Fortunately, uh, it's like we saw with the development of vaccines. You need money to fund the research to find the drugs that will prevent and cure the disease. And I think we've taken a small step forward that way with the drug I talked about earlier. So your story will heal you, just telling it. It's the most therapeutic part of counseling, and it will heal someone else. And if I could give you one counseling tip for those of you who know somebody who's a care partner, it's just to use one of these things here that's attached on either side of your head, your ears, and just to listen, to just get, honor somebody's need to tell their story and just to listen without really uh, sort of interjecting other than to say, tell me more, or what are those tears for? The second need is why we're here today. It's the need to educate yourself, to learn as much as you can about the disease. Now, learning about the disease is not going to alter the uh, disease course that your loved one has but it will make you a better caregiver because you understand things. And also, we have this natural fear of the unknown. And by knowing what comes next, that's the most common question we get in our counseling center is what's next? People want to know, okay, this is where he or she is. What is sort of going to happen next? on this journey that we're on. And it's not that even knowing will prevent that from helping, uh, happening, but when you know it's gonna happen, and then it happens, it doesn't hit you quite as hard. And so I think education is so important, and that's really, that's why I spend two chapters in the Dementia Care Partners Workbook talking at much greater length about the brain and what it does, what it's supposed to do normally, and what it doesn't do quite right in people with different types of dementia. So the third central need is the need to adapt to changing relationships. So we talked today about all these different behaviors that change in the early to middle part of this disease and how the person's personality changes and their ability to express themselves emotionally changes. And all of that impacts the relationship. And, um, and the, that person, because of their disease, they're less adaptable to the changes in relationship than you are as the unaffected care partner. So you have to be intentional as a care partner to learn strategies like being more patient, or acknowledging and affirming and redirecting or understanding the five love languages. And there are some other strategies that you can use that help you adapt to the change in relationship so you can maintain emotional intimacy and the strength of those love bonds as you're going through the journey with that person. So uh, we talked about attachment and that um, dementia causes attachment loss and separation distress, and about how you can use the five love languages to help you stay attached to somebody uh, all the way through their journey until they take the final breath of that journey. So there's a quote, um, uh, and I lead the, the chapter of the book on this particular need, 
that says, even though behaviors have changed, the person you know is still in there. And I think that this is really, this is true for dementia, and this is true for people who are affected by mental health diagnoses, that even though their outward behavior, the things they say and the things they do will change in the context of their dementia or uh, maybe their depression or their anxiety, that you just, you have to remember, beneath the veneer of uh, the things going on, that person is still there and they need to be attached and they need to be loved. And it means you have more work to do to try and help make that happen. And it's one of the really hard things as a care partner because you're always on, you know, you're always having to do. The fourth central need is the one I want to spend more time talking about today, and it's the need to grieve your losses. So um, Claire and I um, lead the, um, the dementia care ministry at Calvary Baptist Church where, where we attend, and we have a support group uh, that meets once a month. And we had a group just this past Sunday before we came, and um, we had a new person in the group. So we always start by saying, well, well, tell us about your loved one with dementia. Kind of tell us your story. And so she talked about her husband who sounded like he was somewhere in the MCI, maybe early stage Alzheimer's part of his journey. And then I like to ask the question, well, what's been the hardest part? And she just uh, broke down into tears. And she said, um, he's not him anymore. You know, he's not the man that I married and the man that I've been married to for, I can't remember how many years, 18 years I think they had been married. He's changed so much. And I'm, I'm sort of, I'm losing him. I'm losing sort of us. And uh, just very tearful. And this is part of the grief that happens um, on a journey. And you can feel this grief in our group, we have spousal caregivers, we have adult children, we have siblings um, uh, in our group. And, um, and so these are some of the grief experiences that happen for a person who's taking care of a loved one with dementia. And so um, I want to talk a little bit more about the topic of grief and loss, and then I'll come back and finish up the last four of the central needs. So um, this is another quote from someone that says, one of the hardest things that you'll ever have to do is grieve the loss of someone who's still alive. This is called ambiguous grief because uh, I don't know if you've ever had the experience. So I know there are some of you here who have mild cognitive impairment or early stage dementia. And I would never know looking at you that you had a, a sort of a major cognitive disorder. You just, you can't tell looking at someone. And so Rebecca and I would have the experience if we were at the grocery store and somebody that, that we were acquainted with would come up, they would know that she had dementia, Alzheimer's disease, and they'd say, oh, Rebecca, how are you doing? And she, you know, she could smile and say, oh, I'm doing fine. You know, language is the last skill lost in Alzheimer's disease. So most people with Alzheimer's are, are pretty able to, to carry on a conversation, at least early, mid-on. And, um, and then they'd look at me and say, oh, she looks great. You know, she must be doing great. Now, they didn't know that I had to dress her in the morning, I had to cut meat, 
help her eat her meal, to help her with toilet hygiene. You know, you can't see any of those things. And that's the ambiguity of the loss, is the person looks okay, but in fact, they can be quite impaired. And it, in some ways, it diminishes that loss experience for the caregiver when that ambiguity is expressed. So, um, why is the grief such a long-lasting experience with dementia. And that's because the length of time that people have dementia after diagnosis. So most people diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease will live about eight to 10 years. Um, but it can be shorter than that, especially with early onset or certain other types of dementia like frontotemporal dementia. Or it can be much longer than that. There are people who have lived with cognitive impairment or dementia for 20 or 25 years. So it's a long, long sort of grief experience um, because of the, what's called the natural history uh, of the disease. So what is grief exactly? Um, so Alan Wofelt, who's a, a kind of a world-renowned grief counselor, uh, is a friend and a colleague. We co-wrote um, one of the books that, that we have out there, uh, our leader's manual. And he defines uh, three terms that I think are important uh, that we generally just put under the window of, of terms of grief. So the term grief or grieving are the internal thoughts and feelings that you have when somebody you love dies or somebody in this context, when somebody uh, that you love develops a disease that is a chronic disease or a life-threatening disease. So, but it's what you feel on the inside as opposed to mourning, which is grief gone public. It's the outward expression of your inward grief. So when you cry, for instance, that's an outward expression of your grief. And one of the uh, most uh, helpful questions in grief counseling is when somebody has tears. And often we'll assume what those tears are for, but one of the most powerful questions you can ask is, what are those tears for? So besides being a good listener, uh, you can ask somebody, well, what are those tears for when they're sharing their story and mourning that loss? Um, you will grieve and mourn all through the loss of a person through death. So you'll think about that person and both have inward feelings and outward expression, expressions of that grief all the way through the rest of your life. That's normal. Even though our American culture is very much uh, oriented towards getting over your grief. Doesn't work that way. The term bereavement uh, means literally to tear apart or tear into two. And it's the grieving process that occurs um, as you lose someone through death or experience that chronic illness. So those are just some background terms. Now, the original sort of view of grief came from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross uh, many, many years ago now. And she talked about these five stages of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. And um, that's, uh, that's sort of an older view of grief. What we now understand is these are common experiences that people have who are grieving, um, but they don't occur necessarily in order. Uh, sometimes they do, but they don't always occur in order. And you can go back and forth between the different aspects uh, of grief journey. 
But grief for the dementia care partner is different than the grief loss through death. And that's what I want to talk about now. So when we talk about a caregiver's grief and loss experience, we talk about sort of four, care, uh, four categories of that experience. There are personal losses that the person has, and I'll expand on that on the next slide. There are relationship losses. There's loss of peace of mind. And then there are f there's family grief and loss. So let's, talk, let's look a little bit more at each one of these. So on the personal level, as a caregiver, there's loss of time and freedom. So if you're doing that average 25 hours of caregiving, maybe plus working uh, full-time uh, either at a paid job or uh, as a homemaker, you know, and then trying to um, maintain personal health uh, and have some aspect of maybe social activities or, or recreation, there's just not enough time in the day. The caregiver typically feels this paradox of, I need more time for myself, but I need more time to care for him or her, whoever it is that they're caring with. There are lots of paradoxes of being a dementia caregiver, but this paradox of personal loss of just, there's not enough time in the day. There's not enough time to do what you need to do. And what typically happens is um, all of these things suffer. So personal health suffers for the caregiver that has dementia. Occupation suffers. There was a study once that found that if a person was a caregiver and um, over the 10-year period they were caregiving, their average income fell by 40% because either they had to go part-time or find a different job that paid less but was more flexible so they could do their caregiving. And then just to be able to have some time for self, you know, some downtime for self. And as you'll see in one of the two of the other um, uh, central needs that caregivers don't do a very good job of taking care of themselves. They tend to put their loved ones first. What about the relationship losses? So I talked uh, this morning, I gave you the case study earlier this morning about the couple who had grown apart. And this is, uh, this is very common. Uh, uh, I describe it in the book as loss of the twosome. So when you're in a, a marriage or you're in a partnership, you have your individual identities in that partnership. You know, you do sort of your thing, let's say, as husband, and she does her thing as wife. And then you have an identity as a couple. You function together. And what happens is when somebody's affected by dementia, it changes all three of those things. It changes, let's say it's the, the wife who has dementia. It changes her role individually. It changes her contributions uh, in the marriage. It changes his roles and responsibilities. And it changes how they function. And it completely kind of disrupts the rhythm that they have in their individual and their collective lives together. And that's the loss of the twosome. There's also a loss of intimacy. And so, and I don't mean just sexual intimacy. Uh, most people living with dementia, they do lose the, the sexual intimacy that's part of their relationship especially once the person gets to the middle or later stage of the journey. 
but there's also a relational intimacy that's there that's separate from the, the, the sexual intimacy. You know, and so that intimacy changes too because it's the, the love languages, the ability to communicate and to touch and to do things for one another, spend time with one another, or share things, gifts with one another. It's the ability of that reciprocal love that changes and that affects the intimacy. Uh, although I will say that, um, that even though, even after Rebecca lost recognition of me as her husband, that we were able to maintain a level of emotional intimacy all the way to the end of her journey. And it just, it had to be very intentional. And once in a while, you know, every night I would uh, put her to bed and I'd say, I'd tell her I loved her and I'd tell her what a good wife she's been and what a good mom she's been. And you know, once a week or once a month, it would click. And you know, there'd be a smile and a nod. And you know, those few seconds of where we connected and had intimacy, those are really some of the things that kept me going. And so, um, and just some of the most wonderful memories we have that I have of her, because now I have a relationship of memory with her. That's what happens in loss through death, becomes a relationship of memory. And then what, what we hear from so many people is, we had so many plans for when we retired and would have these years together and how those plans were disrupted. Another category of loss is loss of peace of mind. When you're a caregiver, you're constantly worrying about stuff in the present and you're constantly worrying about this issue I mentioned, you know, what's next? What's next? What, what's next? And, um, uh, and so, um, in a sense, part of what's sacrificed in always worrying about things is your own kind of peace of mind. And it's really hard to, to feel at peace when you're a dementia care partner. Um, and it's another paradox. I need to feel more peace. You know, I need to decompress. I need to chill out. I need some downtime, I need to relax, and yet I have so many things I need to do. You know, and it's really hard, because uh, both can't exist at the same time. And then there's the loss of peace of mind. I've already heard this from one person this morning uh, who said, you know, I just, I promised him I'd never put him in a nursing home, and now I, I just, I can't do it at home anymore. And, and let me say this, that what, what we usually do when you get to kind of the middle to late stage, it's when the person living with dementia starts having the agitation or the aggression, and you're having trouble dealing with it, even with these strategies, uh, or they become incontinent, and you have to become what I call the rear admiral. Okay. That's usually kind of where the deal breaker is. <laughs> That's fine. I say that because, uh, you know, it, it's not a very pleasant situation, and that adds a little humor. And my daughter said to me, Dad, we are not going to be the rear admirals on this ship that's sailing here. <laughs> 
for them, that was a dignity line that they didn't want to cross with their mom. But, th but the incontinence issue and the challenging, really challenging behaviors, that's usually where care partners say, I just don't know if I can keep him or her at home anymore. And so the issue is not whether you made a promise that you would never put them in residential care. Um, the issue is, or it's not whether you're a good son or a good daughter or a good wife or a good husband. Those are not the issues. Okay, it's not about you as the care partner. The issue is where is that, where is the best place for the person with dementia to live to get the care that they need? So Kim was talking last night about somebody who wanted to take care of their loved one at home, but they weren't ambulatory, so they needed two caregivers 24-7. And if you do the math at 25 bucks an hour, it's a quarter of a million dollars a year. And most people don't have a quarter of a million dollars a year. And that's even if you could find eight people to draw from, that's the number eight to 10 caregivers is what you need to staff 24-7. Uh, 365. You need about four or five caregivers for each 24-7 period. And right now they're in short supply, limited training. It's really, it's, it's sort of a mess. So the issue is where's the best place for them to live and get their care? And it takes that backpack off of you as uh, wondering, well, if I'm a good son or a good daughter, if mom has to, or dad has to go into residential care. So, um, so that's, uh, that's another peace of mind issue. Um, other kinds of loss that can occur, there can be losses within the family system too, these exact kind of losses. Personal losses, relationship losses, loss of peace of mind, just within the entire kind of family unit. Now, I mentioned ambiguous loss. There are two other um, uh, kinds of loss that can occur on the, on the dementia journey. One is anticipatory grief. It happens with cancer too. It's when you hear the C word or the D word and you immediately think, well, this, you know, I'm not going to get out of this diagnosis alive. And you begin to think about your own mortality or as a care partner, you begin to think about your loved one's mortality and you start to anticipate the losses that can occur. Or with dementia, you have kind of the added burden of, well, what if they do lose knowledge of who I am? Or what if we do lose the love connection that's between us? Kind of the other kind of loss that can occur is called disenfranchised loss. And that's where there's some sort of negativeness attached to the loss. You know, there, there is a social stigma towards aging and towards people with dementia in our country. You know, we don't do the best job of honoring uh, seniors and people with dementia. And so um, there are times when, uh, it, it's quite often, unfortunately, when people who are caring for a loved one with dementia will say, I've lost all my friends, or almost all my friends, or I have family I never hear from anymore. And, um, and in a sense, it makes them feel like, well, you know, what happened? that they don't want to be part of my life anymore. And that's kind of the notion of disenfranchised loss. So these are really important things to talk about as one is telling their story. So let me go back to the last four central needs. And I've alluded to this, and that is that you need 
to take care of yourself as a caregiver. You have to take time. So I say if you're a full-time caregiver, you need somewhere between a half and one day off a week where somebody else is taking over for you. Or if you're a part-time caregiver, you can just sort of figure out in a month's time whether you need a couple half days or a couple days off. So you just have some time for self. Um, because caregivers have more depression, more anxiety, poorer mental health, poorer physical health because of the stress that they're under as caregivers. It's an experience of chronic stress, and chronic stress is not good for our bodies. And there's a quote that says, almost everything will work again if you un unplug it for a few minutes, including you. It's by a woman named Anne Lamott in a book that she wrote, and I really like that. And, um, you know, in our support groups, we talk about the importance of being intentional um, in planning time off for yourself. It has to be part of your week. The next need is the need to ask for and accept help from others. And particularly when these things occur, which I mentioned earlier, that's really when caregivers feel the need to get more help. And I say that caregiving is a team sport, not an individual event, and it's a marathon, not a sprint. And um, I teach caregivers to be very vocal about what their needs are. So, you know, people will say, oh, well, let me know if I can help you. And so you can respond to that person and say, I don't have time to mow my lawn. Could you come once a month or once a quarter? You get a couple people to do that, and all of a sudden, your lawn is mowed, and somebody's just giving you an hour a month or uh, an hour a quarter of their time. You can be really intentional. You have to be intentional about asking for help. And we're so reluctant to do that, you know, especially in the church setting. We're great at you know, giving help, but we're not quite as good at receiving help. And I'll never forget Rebecca's doctor, who was a, a Christian man. And he said, you guys are used to serving. And now you're entering a season where you have to be served. And that was such good advice. It was hard, but it was good. The seventh central need is to be uh, the need to prepare for what's ahead. There are legal issues. You had a breakout session I heard was awesome uh, about the legal issues that you can prepare for, the financial issues, and um, the end-of-life issues. Um, and so we all know that we have to confront end-of-life. We are all mortal beings. Um, so when you get a dementia diagnosis, you've just learned what it is that's probably going to cause your life to end in an approximate time frame. But there are some important end-of-life issues. And I talk a lot about those um, in um, the eighth chapter of the book. So I like this saying, dates on the calendar are closer than they appear. Unfortunately, most families on the dementia journey are more in a reactive mode. The need to prepare is to put you in a proactive mode. And then last central need is the need to explore existential and spiritual issues to find meaning. Um, I think that, um, that sometimes within the setting, within a faith setting, uh, people don't feel permission to ask the hard questions. You know, why him? 
Why her? Well, does God really exist? Well, if God exists, then is God good? Well, if God exists and God is good, is he powerful or not? Is God really sovereign? Another theme of, of David's talk at the breakout. And so people need the space to explore those spiritual issues, to tell the story about maybe the crisis in their faith that they're having. And that, um, that circles us back to um, the conference. Um, so I, I write a, a little different perspective uh, about this issue of the gospel and, and dementia in the very last chapter of both, uh, uh, primarily in keeping, the Keeping Love Alive, the Green Book. And um, David referenced this earlier. That chapter took uh, three days to write with a lot of angst about, well, well you know, w w what about the faith journey when your 53-year-old wife has been diagnosed with dementia and now you're going to lose her? She died at the age of 62. Where does the gospel fit into that? So... Um, Rebecca and I went to the Mayo Clinic to get a second opinion after her diagnosis. Um, I had done my medical training there, and our next door neighbor, while we lived there, I worked there for a number of years before moving to Wake Forest, was a guy named Dr. Ron Peterson, the world expert on early onset dementia. Just happened to be our neighbor, our kids grew up together, he knew Rebecca. So we went to him for a diagnosis. And we left the Mayo Clinic to drive up to the Minneapolis airport to fly home to North Carolina. And, uh, and we pulled over in a little town between Rochester and Minneapolis. And um, I said, sweetie, we have to talk about this. And you know, Rebecca is a woman of really deep faith. And she looked at me and she said, you know, I know that this, is gonna, this disease is going to end my life. I know a lot of things about me are going to change, but I just want you to know I'm okay. You know, I know where I'm going, and I always want you to know that. And she said, and I just want you to take care of me. So, um, and um, it was a faith journey. It was a hard journey. There were many times, so I, I put this verse from Matthew 27, 46. There are many times when I said what Jesus said on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was a really hard journey, especially at the end. And yet I will tell you that within that journey, my faith has grown. And it's because of... Uh, somebody showed me a little bookmark today with John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. Rebecca did not perish, but she has entered eternity. And so I have learned to trust. My faith has deepened. There are times when I still ask Why? Why didn't my daily prayer for her cure get answered? I don't know. I'm going to ask, David, like the questions you, you were saying. I got a lot of questions when I enter eternity. I have the feeling we probably won't really care to even get them answered. But, but it is a journey of faith. And um, 
trust. And uh, the gospel is central to that trust and faith. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please subscribe to this channel if you've not already done so. And also leave a review if you found the content helpful.